Well, tonight we will be back here, and we will not be meeting in small groups. We'll be meeting in one large group here at the auditorium. This is the, have I ever called this the auditorium before? No? Well, that'll be the last time. Felt weird coming out of my, my mouth. Uh, we'll be meeting here um, at 6 o'clock tonight, and we are going through a series called Western Eyes that I'm actually going to start this morning. I know last week I put in the bulletin that we were starting a, st- a series on the Holy Spirit this week, but I thought um, I would give you a taste of what we're going to do on Sunday night this morning, and maybe you'll come back um, to hear the rest of it. I, will, I, I won't end with this, so I need to get this out in front. Next, uh, tonight, we are going to talk about why Paul didn't like marriage that much. Uh, that's a thing that we've sort of just ignored because in the West, we really value marriage. Um, Paul did not, and we're going to have to try to figure out the difference between us and him and why and what that means for your particular marriage. Are you supposed to call it off? Maybe. Come see. So, the uh, really glad you're here. We really missed you last week. Um, I was off listening to a better preacher than me. And um, I'm glad Cade was here to fill in, and that was very, very helpful. It's nice to have people who can step in, men from this community, from this church. Um, very, very capable speakers and preachers, and we're very thankful for them. Uh, all right, so let's talk about our worldview for a second. A worldview is, the, is, is how, oftentimes something we don't even think about, but it's how we perceive and how we judge what is going on around us. Our worldview matters in most, if not all, of the decisions we make in our life. How we perceive and judge the world around us matters. It matters in how you interact with people you don't know, how you interact with your, what you think about uh, politics. It matters with what you think about your spouse and what you think about the Bible. You view everything through a lens. Now, you're never going to get rid of it. And one of the first things they teach you in school Uh, At least one of the first things they taught me at Harding was the difference between two words I'd never heard before. Difference between exegesis and asegesis. It's not Jesus as in Jesus Jesus, it's Jesus as in G-E-S-I-S. Exegesis means reading from the Bible, getting out of the Bible. Asegesis is putting things into the Bible. And the point they always made was you will never get rid of your Jesus. The ideal thing is to just solely take everything out of the Bible. Never take any of your preconceived notions or preconceived understandings and put them into the Bible. But the hope is to get the things out of the Bible. You're never going to be able to do that altogether. You were raised a certain way. You see things from a certain perspective. And you will never get rid of your worldview. The best thing you can hope to do is at least recognize that you have one. And that yours isn't the only one that exists. For example, a missionary was visiting Britain. Great Britain, but I don't 
like to assign adjectives to countries, so just Britain. He was visiting Great Britain, <laughs> and he, uh, he saw, he, he was being picked up by another missionary, a, 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 a lady and her husband there in, in, in town at the airport. And his wife gets into the passenger seat, and to hear the missionary tell it, says she got in and said the F word. And of course, the, everyone who's hearing the story says, oh my goodness, why? Why would a Baptist missionary's wife say such a foul and harsh word? The... Um, husband was sitting there and says, you know what word we're talking about? I'm like, of course, yes. And she said, I can't even say it. And he said, he leaned in, he said, she means Fanny. Fanny. We have people named Fanny. In Britain, that is a harsh, and I apologize to anyone from that area here, I've just sworn a lot in my sermon. But that is a harsh word, and it's not something you say ever, ever. But we name our kids that. At least not anymore. Now, one of the things that we run into when you visit other places is they've got different swear words than we have and different ways of communicating the swear word. Richard Nixon boarding a plane in Australia is extremely offensive. This number, this is associated with something that we, we do with our hands but completely different. The one finger salute that you give people in traffic? Not you, you're better than that. That's how you do that in Australia. If you go to Australia and tell and get, get done with a meal and say, oh, that was such a that meal was so good, I'm stuffed. You essentially just said, that meal was so good, I'm pregnant. Now, this, is, this, is, this happens from country to country, and the way you perceive things matters. When we say that's a good dog, what we mean is he didn't chew up the slippers. What an Australian rancher means is he herds the sheep. What an Indonesian cook means is it was delicious. <laughs> we have to be aware that these things just exist. There are differences. When I, the, the, the correct term for this is, and I don't know, that, that, there we go. The correct term for this is not mores, that's pronounced mores. A more is, a, is, is something that we can find offensive or it's a value, an, ethnic, uh, uh, an ethical value that we hold because of our worldview that other people don't necessarily hold. Actually, if you, if you travel to some areas of the country and tell them uh, like Rachel, Rachel had a pool table in their house growing up, well, they, they'll, they'll pretty much believe that you grew up in a brothel. Because playing pool in some places, as Christians in some places, is considered one of the worst sins you can, you can do. 
But here it's sort of accepted. Yeah, we'll play pool in our house, just not, not pool in a smoky bar. At least we won't tell anyone about it if we do. Now, there, there, there are certain things that we hold valuable. Rachel has a friend, um, actually, I think she's here, but I'm not going to call her out by name, but I'm going to make an example of her. I'm just kidding. But she once told Rachel that someone had said, oh, y'all Mineral Springs Church of Christ, y'all are the ones that, and whenever you hear that phrase, the ellipsis marks there make you panic. She says, oh, goodness, what are they going to say? Y'all are the ones that sacrifice. Sacrifice what? No, they shouldn't sacrifice. They said, y'all are the ones that let people take drinks into your sanctuary. Do y'all know that's one of the things we do? I don't know. I mean, yes, that happens, but I didn't know that was a big deal elsewhere. It's a big deal elsewhere. That's a big deal in some places. And so we have a... We, we have certain things that are okay for us to do and certain things that are not okay with, for us to do. And this varies even within the United States. In the Bible Belt in the 50s and the 60s, if you took a sip of wine, you need to ask for forgiveness. And we would quote scriptures and say, do not do, not do this, do not do that. But then you'd go up north and people would offer you Christians would invite you into their house and offer you a glass of wine. And on their cooler, they would have scriptures engraved that said, wine, uh, a glass of wine a night for your stomach. You would say, what? You go to a German's, Christian German's house, uh, a German Christian's house in Germany. They say, well, what, you, would you like something to drink? Yes. What would you like? Well, Anything. What do you have? Well, we have everything. We have pilsners. We have draft. We have light. We have. They don't have tea. Oh yes. <laughs> I forgot I had a German in the audience. I sincerely apologize for making an extreme statement. But, you're, I, I'm going to, I was, my, my temptation is to engage you in dialogue right now, but I'm going to let it be, all right? You just sit there and be happy. <laughs> Called that preacher out. <laughs> no, but we, but they're more prone, and it's more accepted just to have a beer there than it is to have a beer as a Christian here. Now, the problem is, with all of this, is that we sometimes take our mores and we put them in, we shove them into Scripture. And because we shove the things that we, um, that we associate negatively, just because of our worldview, because of our mores, into Scripture, they sort of become, well, actually not sort of, they very much so become battle lines on which we will argue and debate. The problem is, is that we don't even recognize that it's our mores, that it's our, it's our upbringing, it's where we were born, that determine our ethical standards sometimes and therefore determine how it is that we read the Bible. And so the Bible becomes a tool that supports 
our ethical understandings instead of a, a story that tells us about the good news. talk about dancing for a second. My son did this in church today. Father, forgive him. He danced. Every single one of my kids have, has danced in church. I hope that you do not take that previous sentence as permission to do so during the invitation song. Not necessarily how we roll here. But every single one of them, they hear music and they dance. It's a natural instinct. Every child does it. That's why it's always funny to me whenever, um, if you watch American Idol, I haven't watched it in years, but when we used to watch it um, back when we were sinners, we had a, uh, <laughs> you'd, always, you'd always catch, you'd always catch. You'd always catch, there's always that one person, and they do the interview before. Rachel and I had this really fun game where we got to pick, they would interview these people and get to pick. Either of these people are going to be, this person's going to be very good, or they're going to be a, just a nightmare to listen to sing. And one of the dead giveaways was whenever they said, I've been singing since before I could talk. Every baby does that. Every baby sings before they can talk. Now, whether it's good or not, that's up to other judges. But every baby dances, every baby sings. It's a way of expressing joy. We, David not only danced with joy, but danced after removing his clothes for joy. And I guess to keep warm. But there, there's a, like, but growing up, especially some of you growing up, what was dancing considered all the time, every time? Sin, not good, yeah. Sin, every time. Now we're going to explain why that is in a later, um, when we talk about language, the difference between language. Um, but we've had, because some people danced in a way that is sinful, we eliminated the whole thing. And so some of us grew, grew up and heard, well, you don't even dance at home. The waltz, oh my goodness. Jesus, save us from the waltz. So, or some, some of you are younger and don't know waltz. Cha-cha slide? No, don't know that? Okay, y'all don't know that one. All right. We have a mixed group here. So, there's a, um, there, there is a variance of, and so what we'll, what we'll do is we'll take our Bible and we'll say, well, see here, here's, here's where you can't dance. And the other side says, well, see here, here's where David did. And we get in these debates and these arguments about our mores, and it's not scripture. I want to talk about the church in Corinth just for a second. We'll actually spend the rest of our time in um, the book of 1 Corinthians in different places. But in Corinth, one of the things they valued, Corinth was just a, a, a just not even a day's travel south of Athens. Corinth was considered to be one of the, the wisest places in the world. These sophos, the Greek um, word for wisdom, Sophia. And sophos are these wise guys. They would, they, they would get together and they would discuss things. They would pontificate. They didn't have a McDonald's early in the morning to do this at 
or barber shops to do this at, so they had to go to the temple. And they would, they, would, they would discuss and ask questions, and ask questions that can't be answered. And the wisdom, that the, the wisest among them was, was the, the greatest among them. And Paul has a bit of a problem with that because their wisdom did something, their value of wisdom did something that he saw as dangerous. And then you can actually, you can actually see this in, in the Corinthian letter. First Corinthians 1, verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Yeah, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. The people in Corinth were considered Greeks. But we preach. We preach something different than signs and wonders and wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It is the wisdom, the Corinthian wisdom, the Corinthian intellect that actually got between them, as Paul sees it, got between them and Christ crucified. What they valued, they lifted up and they, they said, well, this is the most important thing to talk about. We're going to talk about how to worship and we're going to talk about um, whether you're intelligent or not. And I believe we, to a certain extent, have valued the same thing the Corinthians valued. Who's the smartest? Who's the wisest? I once had, when I was a preacher, I started preaching full time when I was 25. And uh, preached as an associate minister before that. But really every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every Sunday morning Bible class, full time when I was 25. And after I got hired on in Texas at 20, age 25, I had a woman tell me, well, you know, I like my preacher to be older. And I said, oh, okay. You're not a really good preacher until you're older. Which actually might be true. It was a little rude to say to someone who was 25. It's also kind of silly because, so no matter what I'm doing, I'm getting better. Age just keeps happening. I don't know if you've tried to stop aging, but it doesn't happen. I'm just getting older. I'm getting old. The end of this sermon is going to be better than the first of the sermon because at the end of the sermon, I'm older than I was at the first of the sermon. I had a lady come up to me after that who heard that conversation. And she grabbed me by the arm and she said, Benjamin, don't worry about her. I think smart's more important than old. Well, I was neither of those things. She thought I was. But you know what I think is more important than smart? A resurrected king. What's more important than wise? Crucified Savior. We can get caught up in who knows the most about this and who has the best doctrine about this and who can argue their point 
better than this person can argue their point. And I think we can get caught up in that and be a lot like the Corinthian church. And one of the reasons, actually the main reason Paul wrote them is because they got so caught up in one thing, a thing they valued long before they even cracked, well not cracked the Bible, but before they even heard the good news. Because they got caught up in one social moray, which was wisdom for them. For us, it might be purity or, or whatever. But for them, it was wisdom. Because they got caught up in that, they, mis, they misunderstood the gospel. And they took their social moray and held it above Christ crucified, resurrected. And so Paul, the whole time, the whole message of 1 Corinthians is building up to this fantastic chapter in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. If you haven't read 1 Corinthians 15 from 1 to 60, whatever, it is unbelievable. And it is the foundation of Scripture. And Paul says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, here's what's important. I would remind you of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn receive, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as first importance what I in turn had received. That, here's the good news. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to, to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one uh, one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. His, Paul, Paul's whole message to this group of people who thought they were pretty smart because they had come up with ways to argue things and they would, they would make these propositions and argue them out and they were wise people. Paul says, it is Foolishness. The cross is foolishness. It doesn't even make sense. We can't argue it out with wisdom. But the good news can get blocked by the things that we start to value. When we argue with other people about, about this thing, this doctrine or that doctrine, or, or this way of doing things and that way of doing things, we can, listen, I think I'm right. I legitimately think I'm right or I wouldn't think the right things that I think. As soon as I'm wrong, I quit thinking the wrong things and start thinking more right things. That's all sort of tongue-in-cheek. I know I'm wrong about things. But I don't know what. And as soon as I know, I'll quit being wrong, I hope, hopefully. But when we argue about that mess, that those 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 things that matter to us because of the way we were raised, the things that matter to us because of where we came from, where we came, uh, the things that matter to us because our parents told us they matter, and we infuse those so tightly with Christianity, so much so that they become the dominant issue. We forget on a regular basis that Jesus is alive. I try to be a good Christian. That's what we say. I try to be a good Christian. I work hard. 
You're going to go to heaven? Well, I hope so. Why do you hope so? Well, because I've tried to be good. That's the answer you will get from most Christians. But the correct answer is, are you, are you redeemed? Yes. Why? Jesus is alive. It has nothing to do with the fact that, I've saw, that I haven't violated my social code. It has nothing to do with the fact that I haven't, that I haven't, gotten, um, that I haven't broken some sort of worldview ethic. Jesus broke down the doors of the grave and conquered death and sin. Therefore, we are redeemed. I can't tell you to just give up your worldview. I'm not saying to do that. I'm not saying your social mores are something you should abandon because you're going to make un- people uncomfortable. But I'm saying don't tie the two things together so tightly that we get to arguing about the things we like instead of the king who's alive. That we start preaching a gospel that's a gospel of our own instead of the actual good news, which is that Jesus came according to the scriptures, died according to the scriptures, and was raised according to the scriptures. And he showed himself to a lot of people. Last of all, Paul, and there's a verse there right after that in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talking about, I didn't deserve it. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace was not, was not without effect on me. We are not good so that we can enter the kingdom of heaven We are good because we have been brought in by the grace of God into the kingdom of heaven. And that he has changed us and shaped us and formed us into his image. We'll talk more about that next week when we start our series on the Holy Spirit. I don't think the message of no dancing is good news. It's not good news. Um, to a two-year-old. I don't think the message that I'm smarter than you or that you're smarter than this church is smarter than other church or we got it together better than some other church, I don't think that's good news. I don't think that we have the right opinion about whether or not you can have a glass of wine or a glass of champagne at at your child's wedding. I don't think that's good news. What I do think is good news is that Jesus is alive and he is king. Tacking our own social mores onto that can be a way of misreading our Bible. And we'll get caught up in things that just flat don't matter. They may matter to us, but they do not affect whether or not the tomb is empty. They do not change the news and make it good. And sometimes they can actually hide the news and make it weak. So today there is no other call but to celebrate the good news of Scripture. That Jesus is alive. Maybe trim trim the fat off of our gospel and focus on an empty cross, an empty tomb, a risen king, an 
occupies the throne. And let that change, shape, and form us into his image. If you want to respond to that good news, maybe maybe you've never really become a Christian and you thought being a Christian was about um, dressing a certain way, um, doing, you, you thought Christian was about like living up to a certain ethic. And yes, your ethics will change. Your morals will change. The way you live, the way you act, the way you behave will change when you come in contact with the blood and of Jesus and you start following in the footsteps of the king. It will change, but he will change you. Maybe you think, I've got to change before I become a Christian. That's not the good news. The good news is that the tomb is empty for you, that the, that the invitation is open to you, and the invitation is not just to get better. The invitation is to be redeemed and to have your whole life be shaped and formed by the one who redeemed you. So when we, get, when we baptize people, we say that they are being buried with Christ and they're being resurrected to walk in a new life. One that's actually worth living. Baptism is nothing without a resurrected king. But responding and Mirroring that death, burial, and resurrection. It's a big deal. Jesus is truly indeed alive. And if you believe that and you never you've never heard it maybe put in those in those words, maybe simplified like that, you think that's something I want to be a part of. Well then today's the day to be united with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to, to, to join with the good news, to actually not just obey the gospel, but to participate within the gospel. Today's the day to give your life to the king because what the king did for you is indeed good news. If you need anything this morning, please come forward while we stand. I have decided